Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m., we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism, brought to you by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles and the Pop Sequentialism website and blog. My name is Matt Kennedy. I am your host. And today, as always, there are fun things going on, which you may hear in the background. We've got the, um, the Nerd Melt University and we've got the improv class. So if you, uh, you hear some excitement, it might be some of that. Um, but hopefully all the excitement's right here in this room. I've got with me a great guest, um, Ave Rose, who is a fine artist I've worked with at Lovely Stasis Gallery, but um, who many of you may know now from the television series that she's just come off of, and I'm going to let her talk about that. Ave, welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's just strange. It's a strange world because I was just on a reality show called Steampunked on the Game Show Network. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, um, you would never, you can never prepare yourself for that kind of, you, you go in thinking, this is going to be funny, I'm going to be on a reality show, and I'm going to make fun of it the whole time, or I'm going to roll with the punches, and once you're in it, you really are a lab rat stuck in a maze at the mercy of all the scientists who are poking at you to make you do the things that are going to entertain the world. Well, at least you started with uh, with a great history in uh <laughs> Not only in steampunk, and, and anybody who is unfamiliar with Ave's artwork, I want to send you to a website, and I want you to say it right now, your website. My art website is um, www.averoseart.com. Uh, www Which is A-V-E-R-O-S-E-A-R-T. And um, incredible work. I've been a fan for years. We've been showing your work for years. Thank you. But Ave's also one of these incredibly versatile people who has done a lot of really exciting things and it's it's because you've had so much experience in delving into a lot of different disciplines you have fan bases that may not even know each other yeah that's so true it's strange I'm, I'm a singer and the people who know I sing don't know that I model and the people who know I I model don't know that I break dance and the people who know I break dance don't know that I was a publisher right. or I am a publisher and that's why we're having we're having you on today. I mean, and any one of these would be ample enough reason to to have you as a guest. But I wanted to talk about independent publishing. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we focus on on pod sequentialism is touching into informational areas that I think are a real mystery to people who want to be doing comics or maybe are are huge fans of the comic book industry but don't know the process. And it occurred to me you've been. A, an independent publisher for 10 years now. Yeah, it's crazy. I I've, I realized it, you know, two, you know, it's 2015. And so I started in 2005. Mm -hmm. 
it's hard to believe that 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 time goes by in the blink of an eye, but at the same time, so much happens. So it's, there's been so many changes. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, when you started, there, there certainly weren't things like Kickstarter. There certainly weren't yeah. as many, um, you know, cross-cultural funding platforms. Oh, no, no. We, you know, you either have to have saved up or get a loan from the bank. Um, it was unheard of to, to ask people for, for money to fund something that you're going to do. And I'm still kind of, I guess, a little old-fashioned about that. Yeah, still wrapping your head around that. <laughs> just because I, I had to do it the hard way, so maybe I'm just a little jealous for people who are handed, you know, selling things that they haven't even made yet. Yeah, no, and, and it, that's definitely a concern. And um, I've definitely addressed this on, on this podcast many times before, and one thing that I thought was interesting is that when Christopher Ulrich kickstarted his exhibition – back in 2010. I didn't even know he did that. He was the first artist to kickstart an exhibition. Wow. And he gave away some really great stuff. I mean, it really wasn't even what you would classically think of as a kickstart now. Wow. Because he was giving away paintings for like less than $1,000, and these were like $10,000. If only I could go back in time. (laughs) I know. Wow. But he was hated on. Like the, the rain of hatred that came down on him for doing this and he barely made his goal. Wow. And I can tell you from absolute fact that he did not profit from this. That He, he is only... a hard worker. He is the most hardworking artist I've ever met. Yeah. And it was, you know, the situation where he found himself working for two years to put together a show, uh, realized that he needed the materials. He didn't have the money to even start the show, that if he had had to go through conventional means, that the show would never just have happened. And um and man, that would have been unfortunate because that show was incredible. Right. But Kickstart has presented an opportunity for people's voices to be heard when they would not otherwise have been heard. Um, just as things like Pro Tools have made it easier for people to record music than ever before. And it occurs to me, and I think you're going to be agreeing with me on this point, mm-hmm. that that means that there's a lot of people that maybe shouldn't be doing it that that have. Right. And that the ease of or the low risk factor means that, well, now you've got corporations saying, hey, why don't you kickstart this sequel to The Love Bug? Mm-hmm. And it's like, come on, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're a big Hollywood studio and you right. want us to pay everything. And, and I can see the frustration of that, absolutely. But talk to me about what it was like back in 2005. Well, there was, and it was said so there was such a different feel because I went into self-publishing, but I did my research. I did years of research. I got out of UCLA in two thousand three, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until two thousand five where you know I was ready to start the publishing company. And what I realized at the time was that people did not like self-made things. Like now, it's the opposite. They like yeah. it if you're one person doing everything. They like that if you made it homemade where back then it was the opposite. They didn't trust it. They wanted it to be, they didn't want to buy anything unless it was from a major company or unless they heard of you. Right. And so it was funny because I had spent all this time making myself look, you know what they say, uh, fake it until you make it. Yeah. I made myself look like the fanciest publishing company. I worked my butt off and made these beautiful hardcover, full you know, color illustrated books and kept saying when I pr- promoted something like, we did this, we did that. And, you know, by the time I had a couple of books out and I was going to these um, small, you know, comic book shops, they didn't know where to put me because I wasn't big enough to be put in the big section. And they didn't, my books didn't look like they were actually self-published. Right. 
It, it was didn't the look strange, independent. Yeah, it yeah. didn't look independent. It was yeah. the strangest thing. And it went from people going, oh, I want to get your book because it's so well made. You must be a big company to, you know, oh, you know, you're a big company. So did you make this? Did you write this yourself? Like, it was such a weird switch and mm. I had spent all my time working on a different model. <laughs> I remember in, I think it was 1984, um... And I'd read an article and probably it had to have been Psychotronic Film or Video Guide about Russ Meyer. Mm -hmm. And I had been kind of tangentially familiar with his work and saw an ad for, or or saw like the backside of one of the videotapes and it had a phone number on it. Whoa. And I was like, wow. And with like the price (sighs) of the video on it, this is back when videotapes were like 80 bucks a piece, you know, like before they went sell through. And I called this number, and Russ Meyer answered his phone. No. And I remember being, like, <laughs> That's delighted. amazing. And I remember thinking, wow, I, I, I mean, that must be why they don't put the phone number on the back of Warner Brothers, because the president of Warner Brothers doesn't want to answer his phone. Like, <laughs> being a 13-year-old kid, I had no idea, you know, that there was such infrastructure. Like, it sort of simplified entertainment for mm-hmm. me in a way. And I think that that was really helpful in making – allowing me to make a decision to move from Massachusetts to Los Angeles. Wow. Being like, wow, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be easy. <laughs> you know, which is <laughs> the absolute opposite lesson that anybody can really take. But, mm-hmm. um, but what I, I think is also true, you know, you talk about doing all those things to give that, you know, the, the fake it until you make it, and I love this, we're going to use this all throughout the whole program, <laughs> is the, um, that you create the solution of success mm-hmm. to create the success and when um, after I'd been at Blue Underground for a while and, and branched off to form Panic House, mm-hmm. and um, all, everybody that was at this company, it was kind of like the Beatles. They all left and became even more successful than they had been at this shop. And my friend Joyce um, helped to start up a company called um, No Shame Films. Hmm. And we were all looking at office space. And we all kind of <laughs> wanted to have office space next to each other thinking, well, hey, we could keep costs down. We could have like... One secretary, they answered the phone for all of us, you know, oh, type man. of thing. What a dream, though, you know? right? <laughs> I know. It's like, talk about a co-op. But what we did when we were looking for a space, and, and Joyce called this to my attention, there was this great, large space on, like, Las Palmas. Mm-hmm. And she ended up getting this office actually two blocks from where we're recording right now at Meltdown oh, wow. um, when, when she was there on Sunset. And I, and I said, Joyce, how come you took the smaller office on Sunset, and she said, because when we go to the video fairs, everybody knows Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And they're going to think that you're a real player because they know that all the real players are on Sunset Boulevard. And I was like, wow, I'd never thought about that. And so I got an office down the street from hers. <laughs> right. That's the funny thing, too, because at the time when I started my publishing company, I lived in Hollywood. Yeah. And that was a big deal that I actually could say that it was published in Hollywood. Yeah. It was such an interesting thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the TV shows recorded, you know, the sitcoms, you know, in the 70s recorded live in Hollywood, California, mm-hmm. you know, even if it was Burbank, probably. Right. <laughs> but um, so you come out of UCLA Mm-hmm. And you basically scraped together enough money to kind of make this a real thing. Yeah. You and know, it couldn't have been easy. It was so hard. I went, you know, I went to UCLA for English literature and with a concentration in creative writing. Mm-hmm. And what they taught us as um, in the creative writing classes, which was like super, um, what, is the, what is the word where it's very selective. Mm-hmm. You know, they only had 15 people or hundreds would apply, 15 people per class. And... 
there teaching you the real world of publishing. Mm-hmm. And what I learned about the real world of publishing, that it was complete BS. I hated it. It sounded like the worst hierarchy ever. You know, oh, you've got to spend a good two years of your life to write a novel and make sure it's really good. And then you got to find an agent and then you got to find a publisher. But once you get that publisher who's going to pay you pennies, he has this contract where he can do whatever he wants with that book of yours that you spent two years of your life to read. Mm-hmm. And he can decide to shelve it yeah. because some other book with a you know, better known author um, decides to come up with the same sim- similar you know, book or similar title. Or, you know, it's just insane because nobody, if you don't have this publisher backing you up, nobody's going to want to read a a huge novel by you. Mm -hmm. But what we learned about the beginning of literature, which was back in the day, they had short stories just put into the little magazines as almost like these little cliffhangers. Yeah. And so I thought, why don't why don't we still have that same format where we give a little taste of an author Mm -hmm. and then you can decide if you like them and read more. But it's so bizarre. It's like, you know, you have these authors who write these amazing, huge novels and they go, oh, and now here's my short stories like book. Yeah. Because they already have this huge following. Like, why is it so backwards? And an even thicker collection (laughs) of rejection slips from all these magazines. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. So I decided and I started realizing very quickly while I was at UCLA, people just really don't want to read anymore. And I was always very interested in art. Mm -hmm. And so I decided when I was going to do my publishing company that it would be illustrated short stories and not comic books Mm -hmm. but with that same flair as a comic book Mm -hmm. because I loved comic books but I'd hate to admit this because I know a lot of people are going to like you know shake their heads when they hear this but what drew me into comic books was that very front page the cover page and maybe I just didn't have a big enough imagination but I'd go and buy all these comics based on the cover page and then turn the pages and go oh it was only the one page that had all everybody who ever bought a gold key comic you know it's like (laughs) magnus robot fighter had these beautiful painted covers and then just like a nine panel box on every single page right it's such a teaser all that stuff and i remember you know in the 70s um we'd go with my mom to the you know one of the it's not the same department store chains and and I think the ones that we were going to then probably aren't even still in business but I remember Riches and I remember Caldors <laughs> and um, they'd be like these polybagged sets of comics mm-hmm. and this was not something that the publishers did because there was 10 different publishers sometimes in these mm-hmm. and you'd be like a dollar and it would be like you know 10 comics you know even when comics were 20 cents it was like well that was a damn good deal you know that's right. two for one and there'd be like one spider-man comic on the outside and one batman comic on the back outside and in between <laughs> was all gold key and charlton and like <laughs> harvey and archie and stuff that you know no kid above the age of six wanted to read probably yeah it's this weird and i that's what i set out to do i thought I'm going to make the book that I want to, that's one, going to be flashy enough to get people, kind of trick people into reading literature. Yeah. It's like, I know you think you want to watch TV, but look, this is very eye-catching, kind of like TV, except they'll make you think. Yeah. So I set out to make these illustrated short stories that would have the same illustrations as the beautiful covers of the comics that I saw, mm-hmm. but in story form, yeah. story you know, form and not in comic form. And um, our last show, we, we had um, Satine Phoenix on as a guest. Oh, yeah, I love her. And she's um, self publishing her book, uh, New Praetorians. And we talked about, you know, the challenges of being, you know, a woman in the comic book industry. But we also talked about, I thought it was great that around the time that you're talking about, and actually probably after 
when you first started doing this. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that maybe when I started going back to Comic-Con after Slight Absence, I started to notice that artists would do the kind of fantasy art mm-hmm. collection that wasn't sequential, but it was formatted like a comic yes. book. And, you know, it's you were kind of ahead of your time. And it was sort of what helped, I think, get that science fiction and fantasy genre fan mm-hmm. base into that type of art. But to have that as a format, and, and, and Satina Grid, she was like, yeah, you know, we really wish there was more of that now, and we're hoping that it's coming back around to it. Because right. page count has been so limited, mm-hmm. you know, that the average comic book now is 22 pages. Right. So it's really not enough to tell a story, and, and but you still have to hit your... You know, just like when you'd submit a, a spec script for a sitcom, it's like page two has to have an event, page twelve has to have an event. You know, right. you know where your commercial breaks are going to be. Mm-hmm. Granted, it's it's a slightly different format, but it's format nonetheless. Right. And so you're kind of unshackled yeah. by those rules by it being an independent great. publisher. And uh, the interesting thing was in the beginning, people didn't know what to think about it. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, kind of funny because I was showing at the Comic-Con, the Alternative Press Expo, WonderCon. And in the beginning, um, people would pick these up and, and think the opposite. They'd go, oh, this is a beautiful cover. This is a comic. And they'd open it up and go, you know, see the beautiful images, but at the same time kind of be a little bit daunted by how... Do I have to this read is, this? Yeah, this is like a full paragraph all on one page. Yeah. And it was so strange. I even got people who would look at the, you know, look at the artwork and go, this is so amazing. This is the most beautiful artwork I've ever seen. And I love the idea of the story. In this book, whole entire book, 30 page book is like, you know, you know, $8. That's amazing. Uh, can I get a print? <laughs> of one of the images and I'm like really you can get the whole book and the book's like almost as big as the print they're like yeah but I want to put it on my wall and it's like oh and I paid $20 for the print it's like really <laughs> <laughs> really it was so crazy I even started trying to trick people into thinking they were it was a whole movie thing when I was doing the comic-con in the beginning so I started at the comic-con in 2006 mm-hmm. I started getting attention by dressing up I did, you know, speaking about being the woman, I noticed that the, you know, the booths that were getting the most attention had booth babes. Yep. I didn't want to be seen as a booth babe because I was the publisher, but I didn't mind that idea. So I took my two hot sisters, Rani and Ranila, and mind you, we all look like triplets or two years apart. And I put them in like bikinis. This is before they said no bikinis at the Comic-Con. Yeah. I put them in bikinis with the satchel that said inkpenmutations.com, my publishing company. Mm-hmm. On, across their boobs and on their on miniskirts on their butts. So when people took pictures of their butts and their boobs, they would see my publishing company. Free company's advertising. Name. It's like bumper stickers. It yeah. was so funny. So I started getting people to come over and check the books out that way. And then I started turning the books instead of making um, just having a normal trailer. I made book trailers that were animated trailers yeah. using all the illustrations. And I put put it on a big flat screen, and people would go by and go, "Oh my gosh, is this a new animated series?" And I'd go, I try to tell them the story before I let them down with the, the idea that it's a book that they have to read. Right. And it's just so weird how many loops are that you have to get people to jump through or hoops, I mean, mm-hmm. to get them to actually like the idea of reading something. Yeah, it is bizarre. And it's funny we're talking with, with Satine that outside of just the comics, they're also planning on doing full-length books, mm-hmm. you know, to help feed the fan base into this kind of collection of multimedia. Right. And with you starting out with these illustrated illustrated books 
with illustrations in every page. Mm -hmm. um, it's which is interesting because it's kind of the format of your classic children's book. Right, And of course, exactly. they're not children's you books. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> I've read a few of these. Um, and it's it's pretty powerful, affecting, actually, um, and emotional stuff. And a prior show that we had done was, was how marginalized the female readership has been by mm -hmm. mainstream comics. And that even when it's a female artist and sometimes a female writer that the stories still tend to be aimed at adolescent boys and i think that that's something no one can accuse you of right that the stories <laughs> that you were writing were extremely personal mm -hmm. um really raw in in the Thank amount you. of truth that they're they're revealing and even if it's in a gothic romance um setting or if it's a kind of strict reality base mm -hmm. the um the stories themselves do touch on things that i think every Every woman who would be able to pick up that story and read it would say, okay, that's true. That's not somebody, you know, that's kind of right. making up a bunch of junk. This this has happened to me. Mm -hmm. And, oh, my God, this is happening. You know, <laughs> where at the, you know, it's 18 pages in, it's kind of like there's somebody else out there that understands what I've been through. And I I really want you to kick out a few of the early titles that you put out, but also some of the recent ones right. so that people can kind of – uh, look into this and pick them up and I invite you to do that now. Okay. Well, the very first book that we published was called Mother's Earn Memoir Dust and it was actually written by a woman her name is Calamity J and it was amazing because her it was based on her life story. Mm -hmm. Her mother um, you know, left her when she was her, her and her son, I mean her and her little brother and she was in a foster home and at one point just a quick little story her foster sister was like, hey your mom's at the a gas station cleaning windows on cars for dollars and she thought that they were making fun of her like they always did and she went over there and sure enough it was her mother homeless mm -hmm. asking and didn't even recognize her own daughter so this book is it's beautiful because it's illustrated by this artist who did this beautiful um psychedelic almost imagery and we wanted the book to feel like you were paging through somebody's memories right and so it's each little it's like separated into different stories that are written either in poetry form or mm. spoken word form like it's amazing and everyone who's ever read it feels like they want to give calamity jay a hug right. and they feel like they've been with her on this journey and that's what i wanted all my books to be about are these these journeys yeah they're very experiential yes and i think that the um the different texture of the storytelling mechanic and the way that it changes is important to remain true to the type of story that's being told and it had to have seemed like it came out of left field to mm -hmm. most people who had picked it up. And some people might have been like, what is this? Right, yeah. You know? It was, it took, and it's funny too because it's people, people just get set in their ways. Yep. And it's funny when you, you can tell somebody likes something, even when they're saying they don't, they'll pick it up, their eyes are lit up, and they're sitting there listening to me talk, asking me more questions. And then they're almost about to walk away before buying it because they're like, I don't know about this. And I say, you know, I just say, hey, why don't you just give it a try and take the book? Mm -hmm. I used to always say that, why don't you just take the book? And they would go, no, I'll pay for it. Yeah. That's how you know somebody actually really wanted it, wanted it, and they were just stuck in their own boundaries in their head. Radiohead would agree. <laughs> you know, they, they, put really? out, they put out their free record. It was like, hey, if you like this, make a donation, but the music's free. Now, that's years no, wow. after you're, you're having the kind of same <laughs> idea at the convention table. The, um, one of the other titles that, um, that you put out after that 
was what was the first title that you wrote? Oh yeah. Um, well, it's funny. There's a secret. I'll reveal it here the very first time ever. But um, I actually wrote under a pen name the first one, and it was oh, wow. a, the pen name was Winter. Oh okay. And it was tongue in cheek, and that was called Zombie Cadence, and that's a zombie story. Okay. Breaking and... news here. Breaking <laughs> news on pod sequentialism. The reason why it's so crazy is because. I really wanted, it was so tongue-in-cheek and not my personal style of writing that I wanted to make sure I separated that for something that I would write that I thought would be more serious. Mm -hmm. And so I created this character, created her whole bio, and actually had a photo shoot done of me wearing a mask. And then when I did um, Fangoria, the Fangoria convention, the horror convention, Mm -hmm. to sell this book, I had my little sister dress up in that mask to sign the book for me. (laughs) And it was so funny because no one had heard of my company, no one had heard of my book, but there was a line going, there was like a line of 30 people waiting to get the book signed because they're so mesmerized by my sister. Mm -hmm. And they thought she was so powerful, but what they didn't realize is that she was so terrified of people that in real life, she won't even talk to you. People have often thought that she was death. So having this mask on and refusing to talk, which is what I would have hired somebody to do anyways, that was just her. And Mm -hmm. people can sense there's something off about her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they just wanted a book to to know this person who wasn't even the person who wrote the book. Right. (laughs) That's kind of a great, great marketing technique. The other, the, um, and a lot of people who, who have seen you at conventions, mm -hmm. you you talked about the fact that you, you dress up and and, and wear, um, wear different costumes. But you're kind of famous for that. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's not just like, oh, yeah, you know, Comic-Con's coming around. I oh, think it's I'll a put on huge ordeal. Yeah. And I, for many years, I actually wore these platforms that made me seven feet tall. Yeah. And um, it was crazy because I'd, I'd actually come back going, maybe I shouldn't dress up. Maybe it's distracting and try it out for like a day. And it was even more distracting not having the costume on because people wouldn't say wouldn't even want to pay attention. They would say, "Where's your costume? What happened? Are you okay?" They thought something bad had happened. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought, "Did you okay. fall off those those uh, Yeah. Did you legs? did you twist your ankle? Now you can't wear the giant shoes. But um, no, I I have to stay in costume and I have to bring people in. And it's like we said, we have these people have these barriers. There's when you go into the comic con, there's it's, it's over stimulus everywhere. Yeah. And so you have to do anything you can to say, come here. And I know people go, well, I want my work to speak for itself. I don't want to dress up. But hey, good luck, buddy, because I'll do whatever it takes to get somebody to come to my booth. I'll do a backflip if I had the power to. (laughs) And that's that's an important thing. And I think that that a lot of people... You know, they they assume they get they get the money, they get the project out there, and then they really have absolutely no idea how to market it. And honestly, having worked as a marketing director at um, at several motion picture companies, mm-hmm. I can tell you that a lot of people that had my position had absolutely no idea how to market things either. And these right. are the people that are getting paid a lot of money to do it. Um, yeah, I read book been, and book and book after marketing, marketing versus advertising, promoting yeah. versus you know. But it's kind of like self-help. It's like there's a lot of books out there, and, and are they really helping anybody? Because the second that book gets published, the metric changes. Oh, yeah, exactly. Now more Just than ever. what happened to me. <laughs> right. But the good thing about your particular experience and something that you've, you've become well-known for in, in many different areas, mm-hmm. and the fact that they all do tie back into promoting back to you, right. is that the costumes led to a kind of performance art. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you, your costume and the degree of detail and just, I guess, ephemera connected to it resulted in another two books. Mm-hmm. 
Um, those two books resulted in short films. Right. Um, one of the short films also helped your brother-in-law, who was yep. on a different reality <laughs> show yep. because of Sig, the costumes. Sig Neutron. You know, Sig's um, amazing costumes. Um, the, the stuff that Triops is is building mm-hmm. with you and the costumes that you guys do. You have sec. I, I don't want to say, but there's second identity that you guys yeah. have together, <laughs> which is building up its own its own momentum and its own thing. And all of these things, when they work in Congress, absolutely help. The the reason that we have the word zeitgeist is that it is you know something that appears within the overall consciousness. These things don't happen by accident. Um, there was a television series where they they had the same teams of people take the same route to work and then ask them to work on a project. Marketing mm-hmm. teams, and they all produced almost exactly the same thing because they had put little little subliminal messages wow. on the way to work in the city on the way there and it was unavoidable That's what crazy. you've been doing mm-hmm. has been planting these very different little seeds and a lot of different types of of um i mean not even just genres but i mean it's like completely different areas of consciousness where you've got the publishing company you've got the opera thank you, you yeah know, the the singing and the and the and then there's the whole gothic community yeah. thing and then your work as a model i mean you've you've had numerous images of you published mm-hmm. in Karen Sow's books yep um, magazines in, in magazines and... um in in this this fashion stuff this fetish stuff there's yep. just straight up um fine art photography stuff cosplay calendars <laughs> you know, and then your your um your sculptural work has mm-hmm. appeared in high fructose yep. it's been on the juxtaposed blogs um, uh, Dark Beauty magazine. Is it Dark Beauty? Gothic Beauty. Yeah, Gothic Beauty. Yep. And um, and Blue Blood. Mm-hmm. And and then there's been you know and then the costume stuff, which is huge. And you, when you've got people that are on the boards of Mocha and Lacma, and they're hiring you to do your performance thing, right? At their at their seasonal parties. I mean, this is about as close as you can get to what the aesthetic of the Andy Warhol factory was. Only it's all you. <laughs> you, know, you. It's like you and your and your immediate extended family. The best response I ever had, where uh, there was a point where I had was at the comic con and I didn't know what to promote. Mm-hmm. I was so confused and I kind of walked wandered around almost in these giant costumes, aimlessly, never being at my booth. I was, like, felt lost. Yeah. Until a fan, you know, like you know, he ran over and he was like, "I've been looking for you everywhere, and I want to buy a book." And I said, "Well." I didn't even bring any books this year. I brought all my art. And he says, well, that's great because people I've been seeing your booth, everyone's buying up your art. And I'm like, yeah, I'm almost selling out. He's like, why are you so upset? And I'm like, I don't really know what I am. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what I'm supposed to concentrate on. And the weirdest thing is that we're at the Comic-Con, but nobody buys books at the Comic-Con anymore. Yeah. And he said, what do you think? He's like, you know, he's like, what? Why are you so confused? I know exactly what you are. You're a storyteller. Mm. These are all venues of how you tell a story. Yeah. He's like, don't define yourself by saying I'm a singer, I'm a dancer, I'm a writer, I'm a, you know. He's like, you're a storyteller, and whatever you do, you're telling a story. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that blew my mind because yeah. <laughs> that's what I've been trying to do this whole time, and I didn't even realize that's what I was doing. But you're also always a walking billboard for everything that you do. Yes, and and not in. Not in a completely out there, like, Angeline kind of way. Let's get in trouble with Angeline because I try and do that <laughs> on every single show that I do. Um, I was in the Rackman program, and, and I think there was one time when her, her manager called three times because we kept talking about her. <laughs> um, since this isn't live, we don't have to worry about that. That's but, um, but even in a way, I, I guess you kind of have to give it up to her in that she's 
always been this exact same thing. But mm-hmm. she doesn't have anything to market except the idea of what this this her idea of fame is. Whereas every instance of you branching out into new territory constantly announces that there's more to you than that last project, but that last project has validity. Right. And so Thank when you. you look at something like the Aliens in LA, mm-hmm. which is um, a picture book, high concept project, right. um, art photography, mm-hmm. um, costuming, yep. um, just a... Guerrilla photography. Impossible to describe in a lot of ways. <laughs> right. Aliens in L.A. was this amazing project with the uh, artist Triops Trafid. Mm-hmm. And he created these amazing um, artistic costumes that were made for street performance and um but they were and it was all done with the lighting just from the costumes and the lighting just from the background on the streets of la kind of guerrilla style photography and a lot at night yes and at yeah at night interacting with people who had no idea what was going on Mm. and it was such a great idea and initially he was just doing it just for the sake of art no one was you know no one was really recording what was happening and then he started having a photographer interact and take you know record what was happening and I decided hey this needs to be a book and so yeah it's a very high concept a provocative idea but when people read it once again it's two stories going around on it's a fantasy story of what's the aliens and why they're here but it's that journey of being there with an artist in the middle of the night with his friend photographer going on the streets going to these you know abandoned tree you know train tracks mm-hmm. and you know waiting for the moment where the cops are going to be like hey get out of here yeah <laughs> which is very much akin to what the the graffiti artist aesthetic is now mm-hmm. that it it really is fashion street art and i've i've never i've never heard that term evoked before so i'm going to yeah, claim it right yeah, here yeah exactly and by all you means use it and run with it <laughs> in a post graffiti world that is absolutely fashion street art in the mm-hmm. same way that knitting has become a type of street art that this kind of um guerrilla photography heavily costumed is a thing unto itself. I'm sure it will encourage copyists, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I think that that needs to be happening in Minneapolis <laughs> and in a lot of other places, and certainly in the South. But that, um, and hey, maybe even Baltimore. But <laughs> that as this as this type of thing kind of gains momentum, you can always circle back to it. I mm-hmm. mean, the danger of always being ahead of the curve is that it's a single idea. And that you were able to execute to the best of your ability, to the best that that time had to offer. And then somebody else comes along and springs forward off of that and has a success that can't be replicated. Right. With the projects that I've seen you involved with, and especially, I mean, especially with, with the costuming, but also, and now maybe more so than ever, the type of taxidermy work that you're right. doing, is that it's a constantly renewable idea. Not mm-hmm. only are the costumes and materials that you're using, you're taking other stuff and doing a type of recycle so that that is a reusable source, but the idea of how you're doing it can always be um, wheeled back upon. That mm-hmm. there's a circle that doesn't close, it spirals, and you can take it in, in different places. And so when you talk about the steampunk show, which, uh-huh. which is by the time this this podcast airs, we'll, we'll have ended. Right. Um, and and so I guess we can we can talk about things because wait we're not I want to really go back fine. to something that you did mention just now. Okay, is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I just my heart was pounding when you said the, the fact that you know I'm ahead of my curve and then something else will come out. You know, being inspired by that. What was driving me crazy when I was doing this publishing the illustrated stories is that people don't realize how long it takes 
from writing the story, getting it perfectly edited. Mm-hmm. By the way, people who publish themselves, do not edit your own work. Number one thing, do not edit your own work. Number two thing, do not let the illustrator design the book or have a look at the designs. Mm-hmm. Those are the two number one rules. But anyway, um, but you know, then you have the illustrator do you know do their illustrations. Mm-hmm. By the time my books would come out, it would be like two years after the you know after idea. the initial idea. Yep. And so I wrote these two under that pen name Winter. I wrote these two zombie zombie stories, where the whole basis is that. It's a zombie point of view from the zombie who's a soul trapped in his body. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is from the point of view from the zombie where it's like, you know, he sees himself doing this stuff. That was the first book. And the second book was the idea that a zombie, if the zombie is still alive, do they have their souls trapped in their bodies? And, you know, should we, is it a mercy killing or can we keep them and, you know, kind of use them as hard labor? That was a, that book is called um, Zombie Rock Band Must Die, Must Be Destroyed. But it was so crazy because I wrote these things. No one had ever heard of these ideas. But by the time these books were being published, it was almost like I jumped on a bandwagon because there was that movie called Fido that came out that was about zombie slaves. Mm -hmm. And then there's that movie Warm Bodies that came out that was basically almost that same idea where it's a a soul trapped in body. Mm -hmm. And it was so funny because I put these books out and people were like, ah, you know, I've seen this already. And it's like, oh, if you only knew. (laughs) You know? So that's just one thing I wanted to touch upon. It's like when you're kind of, you think of these ideas and not saying I was the original person, but I definitely wasn't the one, you know, wasn't one to jump on the bandwagon. Either we all had the same idea at the same time Mm. or, you know, it wasn't me like getting the idea from these movies. We we were just talking in the last show with um, Satine Phoenix about how it's unfair to blame the creator for what media does with their work once it's created too. (laughs) You know, she was talking about reading a lot of the, the young adult fiction Mm-hmm. And um, and how a lot of these projects were projects that were out there that when one thing hit, there was then a rush for anything that was like it that right. could compete. And then that all of a sudden got turned into films to varying degrees of success or failure. But, um, you know, the reason that, that we know each other mm-hmm. um, is through other art friends. Right. And then I saw your work and I said, why have you never shown this to me before? <laughs> I would be showing you all along. And we started showing um, your creations, the kind of steampunk um, inspired taxidermy type pieces. Right. And lo and behold, <laughs> here we are years later, and there's a TV show built around that very idea oh, as yeah, a kind of game show. Oh, yeah, that was so crazy. The weirdest thing is, is as I was watching Face Off mm-hmm. with my friend Sig Neutron on season seven, mm-hmm. I kept having these crazy realistic dreams every night where I was on my own reality show. And I would wake up thinking, wouldn't that be something? And then going, there's no such thing. How could that be? There would be no competition that would get what I do, Mm -hmm. the type of artwork that I do, like that would be impossible. And it's almost a year later where I'm on this show called Steampunked. It's so crazy where the format is, we are repurposing things. You know, you are assemblage artists, essentially. Mm -hmm. And you can either do fashion, steampunk fashion, or steampunk leatherwork, or steampunk sculpture. And we build a house from scratch. Mm. Each The challenge is each room is a fantasy-themed room that has a fantasy character that lives in it. We have to build the room, come up with the story, and build an outfit for the fantasy character. And mm. I thought, wow, talk about all the things that I can do. It's yeah. like every little thing that I can do and do well. Yeah. So, yeah, that was really crazy. And the funny thing is, is I'm not by any means competitive. Mm. 
In fact, the games that I play that I do well at, if somebody is so upset that they're losing, I will often lose mm. just so I don't have to see my friend being upset. Right, <laughs> That's how right. not competitive I am. Yeah. And I, you wouldn't have even applied to it if it weren't for all my friends. I kept getting emails from fans who were saying, have you seen this advertisement? They're looking for exactly you. Yeah. And I thought it was like a sign from the universe because... I kept opening my email and seeing this, like, we're looking for, are you this person who makes this? We're looking for this. And what's interesting is that that advertisement was put out in February, and I didn't apply until April. And I was like, it's probably too late, but I'll apply. And they called me the next day and said, this is the last week of casting. And I was literally the last person cast. Wow. <laughs> Talk about like it was meant to be, right? Yeah, yeah. It was strange. We, When we were doing the biennial taxidermy show mm-hmm. that um, we first partnered with Robert Marbury and the um, Minnesota Rogue Taxidermy Association, um, after year two, which would have been, you know, again, separated by a year. So you talk about the third year in. We were approached by a number of different productions that wanted to do taxidermy-based reality shows. Oh, wow. And one of the companies um, asked me if I wanted to be a judge, and then they kind of rated my list of artists. And then they moved forward without us, which is very typical, Ah. very typical. But we had also been approached as a gallery to be like a reality show. And so... Wow, I, I, that would be awesome TV, though. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know. In my my all response, the characters with Billy and everything. Oh. <laughs> well, one of the one of the things, and I, I talked to Billy about it, and he was like, "Well, it's like if they don't pay, they can't shoot." And I was like, "Well, my bigger worry than that is that there really isn't a lot of drama here, which means they're going to manufacture it, right?" And I don't want to be in a position to be made to look silly, mm-hmm. um, and don't want Billy to be put in a position to look silly. And so the um, we we declined pretty quickly. I was like, I'm not really into this. Right. And I'm glad because I know how frustrating it has to be oh, to be yeah. number one. This, <laughs> your your setup is a game show, so it's right. a contest. Right. So it's not even you're not the constant. Mm-hmm. So that means unless. And with most reality shows, it seems to be that the squeaky wheel gets a lot of grease. Oh yeah. That whoever the loudest person is is going to get a lot of airtime, and so they'll manufacture problems or they'll change the rules mm-hmm. to suit your situation. And I'm not going to ask you about that specifically, <laughs> but that knowing what your work is like uh-huh. and having sold a lot of it over right. the years and seeing the level of craft and also having received submissions by several of the other contestants <laughs> that appeared on that show right. uh, who did not make it into any prior shows, it I love you like, for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth. It's the truth. That um, it's it's surprising and unsurprising the outcome of the show. Right. That for a a for the drama of the buildup, mm-hmm. that it would be easy to set you up as the person to beat and then try and find a way to make that happen, to manufacture that defeat. Yeah, it was so insane because um, I have to be really careful about what I say, but... Um, because even though this will be aired when the show is over, the Game Show Network has been really, really picky about what we say. Sure. And um, I actually kind of gave gave them an, a, a very stern letter because before I even made it public, because I was kind of lazy about telling people that I was on the show because mm-hmm. I, had so, I, I, I had post-traumatic stress disorder, to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, I got a letter kept getting this letter sent to me that I wouldn't sign for because I won't sign for letters that I don't know where they're coming from. Right. And finally they called me up just recently and said, 
we're trying to send you a letter and you're not signing for it. And I said, okay, well, what is this letter? And they wouldn't tell me. Yeah. And then, so finally, I'm like, okay, well, if it's really important, I'll sign for it. I signed for it and it's a letter from July 20th, you know, basically saying, you know, I'm saying too much or somebody might be saying too much or whatever. And I thought, well, that's kind of silly because I had that, that, that was a time where I hadn't told anybody yet. Mm-hmm. Why are they sending me this letter? And, um, you know, it's kind of like being treated like a baby. Right. It's like, you know, you're sending me something I didn't even do. And you're kind of, it kind of makes me feel like you don't trust me. Not like we're fr- best friends and we need to be trusted, right, but right. treat me like an adult. So, um, but that letter did make me think, okay, I better be careful. Yeah. Maybe that's, sure. maybe that's why they sent me that letter just to kind of like make sure I'm careful. But, you know, that being said, it was strange because I went in there thinking, seeing people like Brian Poor's work mm-hmm. and um, just the people that I've seen at the different galleries. I'm thinking, oh, my God, who am I going to be up against? I'm so nervous, but I'm just going to try my best. And then when I'm on the show, I I love the other contestants. They're all very good at what they do, but the level is is very different. Yeah, and I'm not say saying that not I'm Brian Poor, right? Not Liz McGrath. Exactly. And yeah. I'm I'm not saying that I am am better than them as an artist, but I think that I've maybe had a lot more practice with t- time constraints. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whereas one person would be spending, you know, the whole three days making one thing, like I would be putting out like a couple of things, right. which I'm realizing now that I'm seeing the show that they're showing like two things that I made. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, it's because it would be a way too obvious that yeah. I know what I'm doing a little more because they can't show me that in all these challenges I'm making like 10 things every challenge yeah. you know when it'd be one like Bruno making... Mars being on American Idol right exactly <laughs> so you know that was the frustrating thing and when you're on a show like this you feel crazy yeah. because you're so used to people I mean art is subjective so people might love it might, might hate it but no one can argue that you're good at what you do as far as skill it's right. like my, not, that might not be my taste but it's very well done yeah um, but to be on a show where, you know, I don't know if it's agenda wise or what's happening, but, you know, you do your best and you're like, wow, I'm pretty proud of this. And then to have, you know, them compare me to something that, you know, so many threw together or just not as good and have them nitpick just because it's just better for the show or something. Right. It makes you feel crazy because yeah. we can only judge our work based on what other people say. And when yeah. you're in a world where it's like, you know, at you know, when the, of what the majority says, so you're stuck in a place where. The majority rules and the majority who's ruling over you is, <laughs> you know. And you have so. an expectation of fairness, which is automatically out the door when there's a production. Right. Yeah. It's it's so crazy. You know, one thing I do have to say is people kind of think, one, we're not under those real-time constraints. Yes, we are. In fact, if you guys want to be even more wild or mind-blown, we have less time than they say because they you don't realize they're pulling us out for interviews they're also um we have to stop and take a break like we have to go to the bathroom or drink they don't stop the time they start the time when we get there and it ends at the time they say it ends so we have less time than you think yeah and also the fact that they they're creating drama like kind of pitting us against each other that kind of really didn't happen um because i think that certain types of people were cast that they knew would be causing the drama on their own right so i don't think there is like you know there's no fake drama i passed out in one episode i did not fake pass no, out I've, i know you've done that in the right. past where yeah. you, you've worked yourself thank up you and please vouch for me the it's kitchen so, floor. Yeah. it just so happens that i passed out on a bunch of fabric in the punk yard there's something called a punk yard it's a junkyard we grab from to turn into other things mm-hmm. and i didn't get any sleep and we come and i didn't eat anything and we come in the next day and it's over 100 degrees 
and I'm team captain and I'm going into the punk yard and I'm like feeling the heat beat on me and my knees kind of start getting wobbly and I go to kneel down because I feel like something's going to happen. Yeah. And I fall over and I happen to fall over on the, the, on the fabric. Mm-hmm. But people have been emailing me saying, you know, oh, that's so cute. You fake passed out. It's like, no, I did not fake pass out. Uh, it doesn't matter. Why would I do that when I have this time constraint yeah. and I'm the captain? You know, so it's kind of interesting to see the people's reactions to this show. See, what um, I would expect more mm-hmm. from a production is that something like that would have happened and they would have saved that for three shows down the road. <laughs> you know, from what I know about, you know, the uh, the Osbournes and, right. and shows like that, you know, quote unquote reality shows. But um, I think the the best thing, obviously, that, that will come out of this is that people that didn't know who you were before are going to be like, how come, how come that girl isn't on the front page of, you know, this art magazine or um, isn't constantly being covered by this? Or, and, and maybe you will be, actually. Right. Maybe you know? I will be. But that, you know, it's like, how come I haven't heard of her before? And mm-hmm. what can I find out that I don't know? And with you, it's kind of like, <laughs> what you don't know? <laughs> there's a lot you don't know. And, yeah. and, here, and good for you because it's there's a lot of great stuff out there. So that this is going to obviously um, probably get you booked out for commission on your clothing, thank you on on the fine art stuff, but then also I'm already getting asked to do all kinds of conventions where they're featuring yeah. me and they're saying we'll pay for the hotel. It's so, yeah. wow, it's awesome. Featured guest, yeah, local celebrity, yay, you love that. That's <laughs> awesome. And um and then just and also the ability to to get into other more selective environments mm-hmm. because you will have a certain cachet and the um. The experience and the work that does speak for itself, um, you know, people can look back and say, "Hey, well, you know, this is she's been doing this since for quite a while now. Look, right. there's this coverage out there. This exists, mm-hmm. and you know, look at the look at the degree of improvement between this and this. But then look at all this other stuff. Right. I mean, it's it's kind of like." What if Prince was also, you know, the president of the United States? You know, it's, it's like, you know, this guy's pretty hardworking and pretty busy, but my God, he really just does one thing. And here you are doing five or six different things. Thank still you. Still self-publishing. Yes. Still um, collaborating with, with a lot of other people to make mm-hmm. great things happen. Um, still staying on top of the fine art stuff. Still producing great work in, in fine art shows. I'm still selling it. Other people are still Yay. selling it. And um, as I say, with... With each circle, as each Venn diagram crosses, you find another specialized thing that catapults you up into a, a higher area of recognition. And that's good stuff. And that means a lot. I mean, it was uh, interesting because when I went on the show, at first they thought I just made things pretty because I'm a pretty girl. Mm-hmm. And then when they found out that I made mechanical moving sculptures yeah. in the first episode, um, in the next couple of episodes, they had this girl where I said, you know, me and the team captain decided I would make the art. And this girl who's a supposed fashion designer <laughs> she was like why does Ave think she can suddenly make clothes and it's like really I suddenly think I can make clothes and that was the best part because it's exactly what you said if you have any doubts if you see in the show and anything's edited to kind of be wonky or maybe not showcase my skills to the best of what I can do I love the fact that I have so many ways for people to can see exactly what I do and yeah. for how long I've been doing it yeah there are some people on the show who um, they're they're talkers they're not doers and they brag and brag and brag, and then you go online and you can't find anything yeah. that they've done. And so I'm just happy that I'll, I can just let my work speak for itself. 
Excellent. Well, I think that's probably a pretty great place to leave off. And, um, you know, we learned quite a bit about those early years of independent publishing. And we'll probably have a roundtable discussion in, in one of the upcoming shows with a lot of different people with different experiences as independent publishers and talk about where you find other talent because a lot of people publish themselves like you also mm-hmm. publish other people. And there's there's kind of an art form to that even. Right. But that um, we're obviously going to look for you at the um, – not only at the San Diego Comic Con, but <laughs> at, uh, at the other shows that you'll be doing. Um, quick shout out, give me some some email, uh, or give me some some web addresses for projects that you get going. Okay, uh, once again, I'll say it again, is AveRoseArt.com, that's A-V-E-R-O-S-E-A-R-T.com, and there's ColdSlutsOnFire.com, and... Uh, very exciting. Those, those are good. Those are Very good. exciting. Project, There's one thing. Are, do, can I mention one more thing? Absolutely. Or is it, are we like running out of time? No, go ahead. Okay. One thing, that front story, funny story I had to tell you guys was the submissions because you just mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And I was having people submit stories. But what I realized was um, not only submit stories, but submit art for, mm-hmm. you know, stories. And um, when I would reject them, they would go from being a hardcore fan to be a hardcore hater. And this is back in MySpace days. Welcome to my world. Yes. And so what I created was, <laughs> since I was already creating characters, I created a character called Hector Reject- Hector the Rejector. I put out an ad on Craigslist and said, are you weird, scary looking, or just uncomfortable to be around? Um, you know, come hit me up. And I found a guy named Michael Schmidt, who's actually now been on several TV shows and everything as kind of like the, the weird chubby guy Mm -hmm. he likes to flaunt it so i'm not afraid to say that um but and i took a bunch of pictures of him making weird faces with thumbs down looking at people's manuscripts Mm -hmm. and saying a whole little bio about him saying most likely hector rejector he's a mean guy but i'm too busy doing other things so most likely hector rejector will reject you and i apologize ahead of time but if you happen to get in i'm more than happy to read your you know some and it was cool because when he rejected people it was reflected people were going why don't you get somebody else in Hector Rejector but they were never mad at me anymore it was the perfect thing so that that's... should be an app <laughs> that should be an app that I can use for the 16,000 submissions I'm going to get for La Luza Palooza this year <laughs> but yeah so I'm glad I'm not alone that other people are getting right. the same type of hate for rejection that I'm getting well excellent again um, thank you for listening this has been Pod Sequentialism uh, I am your host Matt Kennedy and until next time uh, have a great week Bye. Melt You, the school at Meltdown where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now.